Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This episode, I spoke to Will Emony. Will is head of maths at Wythern College, the author of the Great Maths Teaching Ideas blog, and also a couple of excellent educational books, and the creator of Numeracy Ninjas. In an epic two-hour interview, we covered loads of things, including how does Will plan his lessons, and we dive very deep into this. How do Will and his department try to create renewable lessons? Can Will describe a lesson that went badly and what did he learn from it? How is Will preparing his year 11 students for their upcoming GCSEs? And what are his plans for students embarking on the new GCSE specification over the next few years? What has Will learnt in three years of being a head of department? Then we delve into two fascinating areas. Firstly, what did Will discover during his amazing analysis into prior learning dependency flow? And what are the implications for the teaching of mathematics? Secondly, why does the concept of memory fascinate Will so much? Why is the distinction between learning and performance so important? And again, what are the implications for teaching and assessment? What was the inspiration behind the wonderful Numeracy Ninjas? And what are Will's plans for the website? And finally, what does Will wish he had known when he first started teaching? It's a longie, but I promise it's a goodie. And the links to everything we discuss will be on the podcast page. But before we start, I just wanted to briefly bring your attention to a blog post I've written. I put together a description of five very simple strategies on diagnostic questions that we are using with our Year 11 students in preparation for the GCSEs. They include daily questions, full GCSE papers, and a new tool for independent revision. They're all dead easy to set up and are having a massive impact on our students, and best of all, they're completely free. Have a read of my blog post, which is linked to in the show notes, to find out more. And finally, just a plea that if you enjoy listening to these podcasts, please consider writing a very brief review or just giving us a rating on iTunes, ideally a decent rating, please. It just helps promote the show. A few weeks ago, I was up to number 11 in the Global Education iTunes charts. By the time I'd run downstairs to show my wife, I was down to 33. I was absolutely fuming. So it'd be great to return to those dizzy heights again. And any help you can give just by giving a review or a rating will be hugely appreciated. And now, make yourself a nice cup of tea, maybe grab a biscuit and get yourself comfy as we spend some time in the company of Will Emony. I will return at the end with my takeaway, and then Will will be back with a lovely podcast puzzle. I'll see you on the other side. So, Will, if we can start with your math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? I've always been really interested by the irrational constants like phi and e and pi and that. I just find them really mysterious. They sort of evoke all these philosophical questions about what is a number and things like that with me. Um, so I, I don't particularly have one particular uh, favourite number, but but certainly the uh, the the irrational constants are are, are my are my favourites. Oh, good answer. And what 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 grabs you about phi? What what do you like about that one? 
Well, in um, when I wrote that Magic of Pineapples book, I sort of I did a lot of study into uh, and research in, into fine. I, I just love all the, the the places that it's hidden. So you know, the it's it's typically the ratio of consecutive numbers in a Fibonacci sequence uh, tend towards phi as as you go further uh, down the sequence, and then that then appears in the natural world. Um, as well, the golden angle is 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 linked to, uh, you know, the patterns that that sunflower seeds grow in and things like that. It just fascinates me. Nice, got a good answer. Well, good start there. Well, let's move on to second speed dating question. Um, what's your what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Okay, this one was actually at university. Well, sorry, A level and then latterly at university. Really, it was calculus. When I learned that, I think that was the first time that I really started seeing. Some real, I suppose it's the elegance of it that I, I really started appreciating, and and the beauty of it. Uh, how how um, something such as you know the area under of a curve uh, could could be done and, and calculated so elegantly. I really uh, I really found that interesting. Uh, furthermore, when I got to university, probably uh, in my first year, I I, I was doing a, an engineering degree. In my first year, we did lots of maths. And, and that's where I really came across imaginary numbers and um, particularly their applications in engineering contexts and, and so forth. And again, that, that all just really sparked a, uh, an enthusiasm uh, in me uh, and, and took maths to a, to a whole new level for me. And as that kind of followed through into your teaching, are they your favourite topics to teach or are there other ones that, that crop up that you particularly enjoy teaching? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've taught the FSMQ additional maths, uh, with, uh, and, and I absolutely love teaching calculus, uh, on that. Um, and, you know, I do, I do mention within my teaching, you know, you know the concepts of imaginary numbers and so forth. Uh, you know, I don't go into teaching them in depth, obviously, at secondary maths, but, but I think it's, it's, it's great for kids to, to see, you know, what maths at a higher level kind of looks like and giving them a, a glimpse of the kind of concepts that they could engage with if they take maths on, uh, to, to let us study. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, uh, question three, last speed dating question is what job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher, Will? Sure. Okay. Well, there isn't one, uh, really. Uh, it, I have various interests. I was actually a structural engineer before I was a teacher. So I did a, a civil engineering degree and I worked uh, f in central London uh, for a structural engineering, uh, well, a, a design consultancy as a, as a structural engineer. I worked on the design of uh, buildings, structural design of buildings. Uh, that was an interesting job and I enjoyed that. That was that was good. Uh, but I also am interested in coding, so possibly a web developer. Uh, I enjoy writing, so perhaps an author of some kind, uh, and I'm quite entrepreneurial, so uh, perhaps I would have my own business, uh, something to do with those. I'm, I'm not sure exactly, uh, but those are the most likely things. Flipping it, plenty to choose from there, Will. I like, <laughs> I like it, plenty of options. Um, well, leading on leading on from that, then you mentioned you're a, a structural engineer. Can you just talk us briefly through your, your career um, leading up to where, where you are now, if that's all right? Sure. So uh, I, I had a couple of years out before I went to university, then I went to Exeter University uh, and did a four years master uh, master's degree in civil engineering, got a first in that uh, then I left Exeter and uh, joined Arup, the, the the design consultancy 
in in central London in their buildings engineering London group. Um, incidentally, uh, listeners to your podcast might might also know that Bruno Bruno Reddy uh, worked at, at Arab prior to becoming a teacher as well. Heck, a hotbed of uh, mass <laughs> teaching talent there. I, I didn't know him at the time, to be honest, but um, yeah, we do have that shared history. Um, and uh, so so did that, and I I enjoyed that job, but for various uh, various reasons. Uh, looked to a to a career uh, change and decided to go into teaching. I'm now I think this is my seventh year and my third year as head of department. I'm uh, head of maths and lead practitioner at Wyvern College in Fair Oak, which is just outside Southampton. Uh, lovely uh, 1116 comprehensive uh, secondary school. And um, yeah, I trained there, loved it so much, haven't left uh, since then, and have, uh, this is my third year as head of department there. Fantastic, and I certainly want to dig into uh, running a department later on in, in this interview, Will. Um, sure. If we could start with um, just planning lessons, because this is something that fascinates me, how, how uh, teachers approach lessons. So if you could perhaps think of a topic that you've taught recently, or maybe one that's coming up uh, next week, and if you could just tell us what the topic is, and then just talk about the process you go through putting a lesson together to to deliver that topic, the resources you go to, the questions you ask, how you structure your lesson, and so on, if that's all right, Will. Sure, absolutely. So um, one thing I've been really um, interested in recently, uh, I guess since, uh, you know, the the mastery learning and stuff all came through uh, and became became fashionable uh, for discussion and so forth, um, I, I've looked a lot into the uh, the lessons that we we learned from the Shanghai uh, teacher exchange and so forth. And there was a fantastic talk at the recent MathsConf six about that. Um, and, and ultimately, for me uh, now, I'm really getting into this this concept of backwards planning, uh, Craig. So starting with a midterm plan for a for a topic and thinking about the uh, the logical way in which uh, to structure lessons across a topic, uh, saving those 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 uh, topics with sorry those uh, lessons which have perhaps the most links between them towards the end of a topic, and then backwards planning the lessons for the topic. Um, so, for example, uh, with um, when I'm teaching fractions, I actually these days I quite like to leave fraction of an amount to to towards the end uh, because. It actually, I, I think it's got many links to many different areas and so forth. Um, for example, the link to multiplying fractions and fractions as an amount is quite strong. So in previous days, I might have done fraction of an amount before I'd have gone into four operations. But now I leave it until afterwards so that I can establish those links with multiplying fractions and so forth. Um, so fraction of an amount as a lesson. Um, in terms of backwards planning, this is this is sort of my thought processes. Um, first of all, I, I, I think about the end of the lesson. What are the kids going to do to show me that they they are demonstrating mastery? So are there five ish questions that I could assess the students on towards the end of the lesson or a series of lessons uh, to see if they have a deep understanding of what I've taught them? So, for example, with um, a fraction of an amount, uh, I, I was thinking of such type of questions as calculate uh, two and four fifths lots of 50 pounds 
Carrots cost 48 pence per kilo. How much would 125 grams of carrots cost? That links to, you know, the need to simplify a fraction before you find a fraction of an amount um, or, or it's desirable to do so. Um, another question linking fraction of an amount uh, with an equivalent multiplication sum. Uh, calculate four fifths of a quarter. Um, perhaps a reverse question such as an oil tank is seven twelfths full and currently holds 210 uh, gallons, how much does the tank hold when it is full, and so on. And I think of those kinds of questions. That's my starting point, which would be at the end of the lesson, if you like. And where are those, and question, I, where are those questions coming from, Will? Are you just creating them yourself, or do you have a bank of them as a department? Well, where, are you, where are you sourcing them from? Sure. Well, at the moment, they're, they're, they're coming from our minds. Um, I, one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be working on with my department in the future, I, I really like I really want to change our um, working practices to being more renewable. So our planning being more renewable, our resourcing being more renewable and so forth. So while this, whilst this is quite in depth and requires a lot of thinking uh, at this stage, I do, uh, we, I've, I'm going to sort of split my department up and they're going to take different topic areas and we will collaborate on this and then hopefully uh, be able to use these this planning renewably in the future rather than um, you know reinventing the wheel every day. I see. So you've so if I've got this right, you you've started at the end point where you want the kids to get to. You've come up with five questions, and I notice a couple in content text there, a backwards one, a kind of a straightforward skill based one. So you've got your five questions, and then where does the planning go from there, Will? So then I think of what activities are going to take me from the basic explanation up to the point where the students are going to be answer those mastery based questions. And so those activities, uh, I, I need to incorporate a certain number of features uh, into them in my mind. And I guess this is what I've learned about uh, from about mastery based teaching and, and the, the lessons of, of what they do in Shanghai and, and so forth. First of all, I think it's really important that there's rigor, Craig. I think there's, um, you know, when I say rigor, I mean that you, you do systematically go through and check all the possible permutations um, of, of what kids can it, it should be able to do on a topic. So, for example, within the context of this lesson, um, you, you could find unit fractions of an amount, uh, non-unit proper fractions of an amount, improper fractions of an amount, uh, mixed numbers, lots of an amount. Uh, you could show the link between um, fraction of amount and fraction multiplication. You could think of reverse problems. You could do a fraction of a fraction. You could check that they can they understand that 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 you could use proportional reasoning within this topic. So, for example, if a quarter of three, uh, if a quarter of uh, twelve is three. Uh, what would uh, two quarters or three quarters or four quarters be and so forth that um, they need to understand that sometimes it's easier just to simplify the fraction first if that's possible and so forth. And I guess, you know, I try and get down all the possible permutations, all the um, all the different ways that you could twist and bend this topic um, in a question to, to establish that rigor. You know, I want if this if this learning is going to be transferable to problems of lots of different contexts. I really think that, that ensuring that you've planned in that rigour into the lesson is really important. 
And just, again, digging really deep into this, are you kind of physically making a list of all these permutations, or are these just kind of subconsciously in your mind when you go into the next stage of, of the planning of the lesson? Sure. Well, I, I guess, you know, uh, what I'm trying to do now in this in this project that we're running to um, try and resource renewably is, is to, you know, to do that real deep thinking time uh, now. But I think the important point to this, Craig, is I, I've got a I've got a pro forma. I've got a template for this that prompts me uh, the kinds of things that I want to consider. Uh, but I think it's really important that uh, then you show it to colleagues and that and they get to chip in to see if they think that um, you've missed anything or if they think there's a lack of clarity before you go and build the lesson. I think, you know, where you need collaboration really is at that at that thinking, that planning time before you go and then build the lesson resources, because that's very time consumingly if you um, if, if, if you create something that perhaps isn't as good as it could be. I think yeah, and if in fact yeah, if I can just come in on that, well, this this has been one of my kind of little missions in life over over the last few years. I and I, it's a bit controversial what I'm going to say, and I, people hate me when I say this, but I'm just going to come out and say it. I I often think joint planning of lessons when it's done wrong is one of the worst things teachers can do it's an absolute waste of time i, I remember uh, when i first started teaching in in a previous school we, we had a big thing that we were going to joint plan all our lessons together as a department but we spent more time arguing over the animations on powerpoint and the, the different size yeah. fonts and colors than actually getting into the, the pedagogy and and i've i've moved now more into joint planning questions and i think when you think about the questions that you're going to ask and obviously i'm obsessed with misconceptions we with diagnostic questions but when you start talking about the the questions and the misconceptions and so on that's when teachers really come together and plan in a really positive and and collaborative way so i'm I'm really liking the sound of this will so am i sensing here are you together as a a, a department and are you saying right okay we're we're gonna have a look at fractions of an amount now i want you to list all the different skills that that students need to be able to um make progress at this i want you to think of all the different misconceptions is 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 that how it's run as a, a kind of a whole department or are you in groups of two and three for it how practically are you getting this kind of list and this rigor together sure so uh i i've i've got a, a pro forma i mean i guess i'm only kind of a half half of the way through it in terms of what you've I've told you I'll, I'll perhaps briefly explain the rest and then um, I, I think I could answer that question better sure uh, so there are other elements that go into activities to build mastery um, so for example thinking of conceptual variation how you can represent the concept in lots of different ways uh, procedural variation there are lots of different ways you could act answer a fractions of an amount question um procedurally speaking uh thinking of those the links to the other topics that you could make the real world context the historical links and cultural links um you know the the writing underneath the vitruvian man picture uh is is indeed actually relating to fractions of an amount Um, anyway so so that's the activities part that's the bit that bridges to the mastery that 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 takes sorry takes them from the explanation part to those five mastery questions uh then uh so then backwards planning from there thinking well what is what is the explanation that can take me take our students from the prior learning that they have from that to the point where they could start accessing those activities 
And um, I think about trying to atomize it. What is what are the real uh, key concepts that I want students to understand? Uh, what are the difficult bits? Because that's the bit that requires the real, really good explanation and the the careful selection of worked examples and so forth. Trying to appreciate what which are the difficult bits within the concept. Um, I'm a real big fan of concrete pictorial abstract in terms of the way uh, uh, explanations uh, should flow. Um, I've had a, a lot of um, experimentation, done a lot of experimentation with bar models recently uh, and, and had a lot of success with that. Um, obviously, planning for misconceptions and so forth. And then prior to that, you think of the prior learning checks, the things that need to be secure before you can do the explanation. Um, so that's the whole picture. And I guess when it comes to it, it your question uh, related to how we actually go about this. So, I mean, this is this is still relatively new with my department, to be honest, Craig. But the, the idea is that um, we're going to divvy up the scheme uh, and uh, principally focus on the, the key number and algebra topics to start with. Uh, so, for example, I will take fractions, decimals and percentages. Another colleague will take factors, multiples and primes and so forth. And then I think it's important that I think you can lose a lot of time if you've got a blank page. Yes. So the first thing is that teachers go away and follow this this process, this thinking process to get down the the, the, the planning, the thinking behind the lesson. And then we come back together as a team into groups and you show, you know, carousel style, you go around the group and show and other people can pitch in uh, with with additional thoughts or suggestions for amendments and so forth. And then at that point, you go away and build the lesson individually. I think the most valuable part is in that department meeting time to collaborate, to talk about the thinking behind the lesson prior to you going and uh, put it, putting it into a PowerPoint and so forth. I think, uh, you know, or, or whatever you go and do as, as you're resourcing for it. Uh, I think that is the most valuable time. Um, so, yeah, it, it happens in inset days and, and, and department meeting time. That's the intention. I don't think that we will get um, lots, you know, a, a comprehensive set of lessons done particularly quickly but, you know, if we are doing this in a renewable manner and the this thinking is renewable, um, then, you know, every step is actually a genuine step forward rather than 15 teachers trying to reinvent the wheel each day. You know, Look, again, this is this is fascinating as well. And again, if I can just dig dig a little bit deeper into this. So you've you've essentially you've you've done your collaboration before the actual creation of the lesson um, happens and then you go away and let's take your fraction of amount example you then go ahead and create is it based is it a powerpoint that you you tend to use to to create your lessons on i i do typically yeah yeah me yeah. too me too I'm a, I'm a big big powerpoint fan so can you then talk us through the kind of the flow of this lesson you, you mentioned um kind of getting baseline knowledge secure at the start before the, you're moving on to the worked examples and, the, and then going through how are you um how are you assessing baseline knowledge and what's actually happening in the first kind of few minutes of the lesson can you just talk us through a little timeline of what's happening in in, in a typical lesson Sure. So then the whole thing typically then runs in reverse. So um, the prior learning checks, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan of being formatively led 
by many whiteboards. Um, I use them in just about all of my lessons. I, I, you know, whatever technology is out there, I've never seen anything that can give you the feedback of what your students are understanding uh, in a lesson as good as, you know, mini whiteboards. Um, a big fan. So, for example, the prior learning checks would, I would typically put up. So on, on a fractions of an amount lesson, um, you would check, you know, that they can identify and represent fractions diagrammatically and in, numer in numerical contexts. Uh, they can cancel down fractions. They can multiply fractions uh, by other fractions and by integers and so forth. And that's that would typically be the warm up, the, the do now task as they entered the room. Um, but they would feed back to me in terms of their answers on mini whiteboards. So if, you know, if they couldn't do it, we'd, we'd just take a little tangent recap and so forth. Um, then I would go into the explanation part of the lesson. Um, uh, typically as a starting point, trying to link it to some kind of prior knowledge. I really do believe that um, if, if explanations can start, from a point of prior knowledge and then build off there that 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 that, that learning seems to be more uh, durable and uh, is retained better. So go go into the the lesson. Um, any kind of hinge point. So typically, you know, the the things that I want kids to know within this topic are that you can find a unit fraction of an amount uh, by dividing by the denominator. You can then use direct proportional reasoning to calculate uh, non-unit fractions of an amount and also then the link between fraction of an amount and multiplication. Typically, I do the explanation bit, but before I then move on, um, I would give them a short activity on mini whiteboards, uh, quizzing them to check uh, whether, whether you know, that that learning had had happened. They've, they'd understood my explanation. And can and I just can I just ask you at this stage, or with the um, with your explanation again? Is this is this a very teacher led explanation? Are the students kind of quiet whilst you're going through on the board? Are they making notes? Are kids coming up to the to the main whiteboard to kind of join in? Can you just just, just drill down into what what's that teacher explanation looking like? Sure, uh, it it. <sighs> I guess it's it's certainly not a lecture, you know. I mean, teacher-led has sort of um, negative connotations to, uh, historically with it, but I, I'm sort of leading the discussion. But I but I do want students to pitch in questions and so forth. So, you know, typically I I will illustrate a, a short worked example or a short point uh, and give that explanation, and then I will throw a question at them that I expect them to answer on mini whiteboards where I can assess where they're going and depending, uh, sorry, to assess how much they've understood. Um, typically, you know, if, if the class haven't or if certain students haven't, then we take off little tangents and I either re-explain or change the explanation to another way and so forth. It's very much kind of um, a short, a short explanation from me and then, um, and then, a short assessment task on many whiteboards and then me reacting to it. Um, quite often, um, if, if, you know, it's not easy to articulate when you don't understand something, what the issue is, but, you know, asking kids the problem, like, you know, ask a question that would improve your, ask me a question that would improve your understanding. Um, that, that quite often can give you a, a way in to their thinking 
um, if you can't spot a common misconception from their answer and so forth. That's nice. I like that. That's good. It's really powerful, I think, to to send kids the message that, look, I'm going to go at the pace that you understand. We're not going to leave anyone behind here. Um, but we're not taking any passengers. You know, if, if your mini whiteboard is blank, then I'm assuming you don't know and we're going to deal with that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of that, that duel of, uh, you know, saying, you know, I'm not going to leave you behind, but I really do expect you to participate, you know, every moment as we go through this and so forth. I, I think it's really powerful. Yeah, that's nice. I know. I really like that. So again, just kind of back to the timeline of this lesson. We've gone through the the explanation phase. Let's assume that um, students are happy now. You've you've assessed looking at their mini whiteboards. What, what happens next? What, do we move into some kind of pract- independent practice or, or group work? And and if so, what where are the resources coming from from that? And what kind of resources are are involved? Sure. Well, ultimately, um, you know, I I. I the resources that I use day in, day out come from a variety of, of sources. I'm a massive fan of Don Stewart's Medium blog. I think, you know, the way he thinks and plans progression um, and, and can take uh, relatively uh, mundane uh, tasks and turn them into real reasoning-based um, tasks are fantastic. Uh, I... We've, we used the, um, new Pearson GCSE, uh, books. They, there's a lot of reasoning based questions, uh, in there that, that are fantastic. So, um, parts of those and so forth. Um, I, I think ultimately what I'd like to do, Craig, you know, through this renewable resourcing as I, as I speak about is I do kind of want to write my own. Um, so for fact, this fracture is an amount lesson. I want to write my own. That, that incorporates all of these because I, I, you know, through all of the different twists and bends and permutations and so forth that I've told you about, I've, I've not really found many resources out there that take this rigor to it. Perhaps, um, you know, typically actually, if you look at lots of old textbooks, they're probably, uh, in many regards, um, you're, 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 you're the closest that you'll get with this. Um, so at the moment, it's a selection. And ultimately, I'd, I'd like to get to a point where we build our own, but then they're used renewably in the future. I see. Fantastic. And are the students, are they working on their own doing these questions? Are they in twos? Can, can students talk? Are answers available to them as and when they need it? And what's what's your role throughout this part of the lesson? Cool. So good question. Um, I'm, I'll be honest, and I know it's controversial. I'm not the a biggest fan of group work, to be honest. I, uh, but I do like pair work, and you know, I've I've had certain lots of um, success with with the Kagan strategies in this regard. Things like rally coach and so forth, where uh, students alternate uh, taking turns to answer the questions, and then the other one who isn't work answering the question acts as the coach on their shoulder, um, you know, encouraging or criticizing as, as they go and so forth and helping them through it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would expect students to talk and to be helping each other on these tasks. Um, I, um, I, I, I will be circulating uh, around the room um, and, 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 and monitoring how students are going. Um, typically, 
not not just telling them how to do it, but trying to facilitate uh, facilitate some kind of reasoning on their behalf. Um, I do typically give out answers uh, along with the questions, particularly at the early stages of learning, uh, because I I think that um, good maths classrooms where lots of lots of learning is happening, I think feedback is so important and. There are ways, you know, to run a high feedback environment, particularly during those early stages of learning. Kids just shouldn't do 10 questions before they find out that, you know, the first one was wrong. Yes. Um, so, you know, training the kids in, you know, giving out the questions, a lot, uh, sorry, the answers along with the questions and then training them into um marking as they go so doing a question checking the answer marking as they go and so forth they get that real quick feedback if they're going wrong um you know otherwise you know they could they could waste 20 minutes uh mark everything find out it's wrong and they have no time to correct it at the end uh, you know at the end of the lesson and so forth so i think you know critics of that would say kids take advantage they just write the answer well, you know, I, I ensure that, you know, kids do show the workings and so forth. And I think if you articulate to them why you're doing it, they get it and they buy into it. You know, that's my experience. I agree. Um, I absolutely so, agree on that one. So, yeah, really a high, high feedback environment, uh, typically pair work, uh, students working on the same task, but encouraged to uh, to talk and work together and help each other out and so forth. Uh, and me circulating, keeping an eye um, on on how kids are doing um, and intervening as necessary. That would that would be typically how it would look. Fantastic. Um, and then, so yeah. again, if once that period of the lesson's complete, are we then at the stage where we move on to these? five kind of key mastery questions that you're going to use in a sense to kind of as the kind of objective that you were you were aiming to get to at the end of the lesson is this where they come into play yeah sure so i think it's you know it's important that you actually pull out um the the points because uh the, the sort of deep learning links that that you think kids um should have got from the from the activities that you've given them um, you know, I think if you try and do that at the start of the lesson during that explanation bit, it's just overload, you know. But once they've worked on these activities, I think it's good to perhaps look uh, to show some work on the visualizer uh, to talk through some of the deep learning links and so forth and, 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 and so forth. And to do that prior to then giving them the mastery based questions. Um, yeah, I think that's that's right. Superb. And then with those mastery questions, um, how are you how are you assessing those? Is that kind of an exit ticket at the end of the lesson job or are you assessing within the actual lesson itself? Um, so it could be I mean, I, I'm not the biggest fan of exit tickets, if I'm honest, Craig. I know a lot of people swear by them and so forth. Um, I'll be honest, my my mastery based questions, quite often they won't always happen at the end of the actual lesson itself. Um, I think it's it's really important. Um, one, one thing that I have learned is that there is um, a real difference between what they call performance and learning. You know, if a kid if a kid could do a question at the end of a lesson that you've taught, it could be based on mimicry or so forth. I quite like to give them these kinds of questions at, at later lessons, a, a few lessons down the line, because if, if they can do it, then you know that real learning has happened rather than mimicry. 
um, and so forth. So, yeah, occasionally, sometimes some of these questions would come in at the end of the lesson, but then maybe I'd save some of the others for another day to see if that learning had endured and so forth. Fantastic. Thank you. And my, and my last question on this uh, this lesson, we've gone into some, some depth of this world, but it's fascinating stuff, this, is where does um, where does homework come into play? Are, um, are homework questions based on the lesson that's just happened, or is it a mixture of prior learning? And what, what do your homeworks look like within your department? Sure. So, um, it, different at Key Stage 3 and 4, typically, um, I think, you know, it's something that we, we've we've um we've experimented a lot with to be honest and you know you get pros and cons with, with each um we we experimented a lot with lagging homework so um using using a homework as effectively a spacing interval to then do another retrieval event of some prior learning so you know setting a homework on something that you've studied three weeks ago and so forth in order to get some more practice on it uh, and build retention um, I find that if you, you know, that's good. And we, we built a whole set of homeworks, um, which, which did that. But we found that, you know, if kids, um, don't show a lot of initiative and independent learning skills, then if you set particularly challenging tasks, um, you know, they, they don't do so, don't, they don't get so much out of those homeworks. If you set sort of problem solving based, um, challenging homeworks i find that it works better if you do it more re, uh, cl- uh, sorry do it closer to uh the lesson in which you taught uh that topic and so forth um so it, it is a mixture to be honest craig we do um I, i'm a big fan of maths watch um and so there's certainly an element of doing some independent learning on there um if you know if if the homework is lagged and they're struggling with it i certainly expect them to get on the maths watch video that relates to that topic uh and and to revise it and so forth um yeah so it's a variation i i believe by key stage four we you know we we should be doing mostly written homeworks to be honest in i we do use my maths and stuff at key stage three and it's certainly very powerful, uh, but I, I don't like to lose those um, those skills of, of of written communication. I think homework is a good chance to you know to 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 keep that going and practice that and so forth. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, let's look at the um, the flip side of this then, Will. I would like you to have a think about a lesson, maybe a recent one or maybe one that's just really stuck in your memory that, that went badly. And I'd like you just to describe it if possible and, and what lessons you learned from that experience. Sure. Um, at, at Wyvern College, we've got really good system for um, for CPD. Our professional learning that we do um, we're very kind of teacher led on it. We, we do effectively these sort of evidence based reflective learning. You could call it a research project if you like, but kind of research with a little R, if you know what I mean. Uh, the idea is to do some, some reading, uh, to think of some kind of intervention that you could try to improve your teaching, um, and then to collect some evidence as to whether you think it had, um, had an impact. And um, we've, been, we've been doing this every year now for what this is the third year uh, we've been doing it. And, and I, I really like it because um, I'm quite reflective myself. And um, I, I, yeah, it's, it's the way I, 
the, the I feel really valuable professional development should be done for for many teachers, uh, particularly if they have the motivation and initiative to want to, to go and do it. So I was doing this project a couple of years ago, uh, which was based on looking into uh, whether we could get learning benefits out of pre and post testing on topics. So giving kids a pre-test before you taught them the topic, uh, teaching them it and then giving them the post-test. And the idea was, uh, could we uh, get some kind of benefits to their retention and so forth out of doing this? And could it um, could the clarity of showing them what the end unit test was going to look like right at the start? Uh kind of focus their minds on the important bits of what they learn and so they needed to learn and so forth. Um, and to be honest, Craig, I thought it had gone really well. I was teaching fractions to this class and I did the pretest and they got like 55 percent. So uh, as, as an average on this test. So I deliberately didn't teach some lessons that they could already show me they could do. I thought this was really useful. So I then spent longer uh, on the other lessons and so forth. Uh, and then we did the post test and they got like 60% on it. Like as a club, <laughs> they'd, they'd improved 5%, and, um, you know, after like four weeks of teaching. And I was absolutely gutted um, because I thought it had gone so well. And if you'd looked in their books, you would have seen um, lots of perfectly presented, correct, uh, correct answers uh you would you would get the impression that a lot of learning had happened uh but the test that i did the post test i did like 3 weeks after i last taught the topic and by then all that learning all that retention really <laughs> had had gone and it really opened my eyes to um needing you know kids can't they don't learn thing things if you just teach it once you really need to, you know, when you teach a topic, I feel you need to then plan when you're going to retest it uh, down the line two or three times until they can show that after a time delay, they can do it again um, and so forth. I think, you know, that really opened my eye. It wasn't that the lessons that I taught were bad lessons, because after then practicing a few more times after you know, uh, a, a couple of weeks down the line, they could do it and it came back faster and so forth. But it really um, opened my eyes to, um, you know, learning is about, for me, learning is about retention um, over time and transfer uh, of the learning to different, you know, to be able to apply it in different contexts and so forth. And very rarely, in my experience, can a one-off single lesson uh, produce learning that endures and, and meets that criteria. So it opened my eyes to kind of needing to plan additional uh, retrieval opportunities after the lesson, if you see what I mean. I certainly do, Will. And that, again, that's, that's interesting stuff, Pat. Is that something that you've then gone ahead and built into your department scheme of work? Is Are there then opportunities to, to reteach and, and reassess and cover topics further down the line? And are they kind of specified in that you, you teach, say, I don't know, tree diagrams, and then six weeks later on this particular lesson as a department, we are going to just revisit tree diagrams 
times for 15 minutes and so on or is it is it very much up to staff to your members of your department to, to choose the opportunities to do that Joe, it's really interesting, Craig. Um, in short, no, we haven't got it planned into um, the schemes of work. I, I'm, I'm kind of a I, I would much rather my teachers understood the benefits of spacing um, and, 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 and incorporated that, them into their practice in a way that suited them rather than a top down approach. And they, you know, they just saw it as something they got to do, but they didn't necessarily understand the thinking behind it and so forth. So I'm a big fan of kind of empowering teachers with the knowledge, but then trusting them to, to apply, you know, professionally in their rooms in, 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 in with professional discretion in ways that, um, that, that they see fit for them. Uh, I, I think that's the important thing. The second point is actually, you know, there isn't research out there on how to do this in schools, Craig. Um, you know, I, I, I know of the research that shows the benefits of spacing out um, uh, instruction and the benefits to retention. Um, I know of that research, but it's typically done with undergraduate students and not not in secondary school maths contexts, if you see what I mean. Um, so, you know, what is the optimum spacing interval? Um, how many times should you retrieve it? Should you be informed by how fluent they are um, in terms of their retrieval to then specify, you know, and adapt the spacing interval? The, the truth is, Craig, we don't know. There isn't research out there. And I'm really excited because I'm going to um, L.A. this summer Um I'm going to have a week at UCLA with uh, Bob Bjork, uh, Professor Bjork, um, who is kind of a, a memory expert uh, out there. And, um, you know, these are the kinds of questions that I want to be asking him. You know, uh, his research shows the benefits of spacing, but it doesn't tell you how to do it in a secondary school maths classroom. And and I want to try and you know, start making those, that, start getting that understanding now. Um, of, of how to do it. So I certainly don't think we're at a stage where you could um, be really sort of authoritarian about it and so forth. And that's I, I, not my disposition anyway, to be honest. Um, I think we need to find out more and I think you need to educate teachers, but then trust them to do it in a way that works for them. No, absolutely. I completely agree. And this whole topic of memory is something I want to dig into a little later because it's I've, I've had a fascinating couple of hours myself this uh, Sunday morning when we're recording this, just, just reading through it. And it's, yeah, it's a, a minefield of stuff. Absolutely fascinating. But my, my, my final kind of question on this is, um, do you have you yourself um, experimented with this with this spacing? And again, if we take any topic you like, have have you because you obviously believe that there's there's something in this have you have you yourself dabbled in teaching something and then leaving it three or four weeks and then revisiting it for a brief period of time or is this just something that you've kind of read up theoretically and, and you're waiting for for more evidence and more kind of advice before you, you build it into your own practice sure um both actually to be honest craig i do it is part of my practice i have read up on it and it is part of my practice um, I've, I've experimented in a few different ways with it because, as I say, I don't think there's, um, you know, real useful research out there in terms of secondary school mass context. But, uh, for example, when I when I, you know, 
we we spoke about my lesson design and so forth and i spoke about the the starters assessing prior learning what i do typically do as well sometimes is the starters will will actually be um you know retrieval events for previous topics and so forth before we then go into prior knowledge checks for the current lesson and so forth um so so i have sort of um i do, sorry i do plan into my uh my my lessons when I've taught a topic, I do then plan when I'm going to assess it again and so forth. Um, it, you know, it's quite interesting to think, you know, do you just do you start off by uh, retrieving it in a very simple skill based way? Or do you then try to crank up the difficulty in terms of them having to spot uh, what what the, the skill is that they need to use and so forth? So, yeah, I've built that into starters with my year 11s this year. Um, I try. Uh, I created this um, spacing uh, delayed uh, maths watch revision schedule for them. So they typically had uh, nine. They were typically revising nine topics a week, and there were three new topics. Uh, there were three topics that they had uh, studied on their revision schedule three weeks ago, and then another three topics that they'd studied on the revision schedule. Uh, six weeks ago. And so by the, by the seventh week, they were on nine topics, if you see what I mean. Yes. Uh, three of them for the first time, three of them for the second time, three of them for the third time. And I just got them to watch, you know, the maths watch one minute maths videos and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I was so pleased with, um, my class's performance on the Christmas exam in, you know, I don't, I don't have actual research data to show this, but I know through, you know, a few years of experience now that this class that I got this third set typically on the Christmas exams in year 11, they're still not nailing the first half of the higher tier paper. Um, and before we go and look at the A and A star topics, you know, there is some work. There is, is typically some work to do with, um, you know, um, averages from a frequency table, that kind of thing. Whereas this year, they on the Christmas exam, they they got up to the staples absolutely fine, and um, you know, so the, the the latter half of the year, I've I've had more time to focus on circle theorems and vectors and things like that than I traditionally would have done. Um, so I've certainly, you know, anecdotally seen the benefits of it. Um, it's certainly nothing that I could call research, but, um, I, you know, I've seen enough to know that I do believe in it. Got it. That, that's fantastic. That And that, that brings me nicely onto, onto this next section, Will, where I'd, I'd like to talk about GCSEs. So you mentioned there um, a, a really nice kind of strategy for, for helping prepare your year 11s for the GCSEs with this idea of spacing and retrieval built into it. Are there any other strategies that you're using either with your current year 11s or, or previous year 11s that you found really beneficial in helping prepare them for, for the GCSE? Sure. So um, I guess, um, I mean, we we do we do a Christmas trial and an Easter trial. And after that, um, we um, we we're giving them effectively this diagnostic feedback sheet based on their their performance. And um, I mean, I suppose, you know, Pixel have come along and they have a, a three letter acronym for lots of things. <laughs> yes. um, so. Sort of subversively, I, I created a four-letter acronym. Nice. Uh, we call it 
the the WAFs we call them. They're uh, the Wyvern assessment feedback forms. Um, and uh, basically, my my teachers go through after so after the trial exams, they get half a day uh, off timetable to mark them and then do the data entry. And they typically um, so the teachers for each student, they're, they're just entering into a spreadsheet, you know, a typical question level analysis spreadsheet. Um, they're entering the ones and zeros and twos and so forth for how, how the students performed on every question. Uh, but what I've done is I've then created uh, an Excel macro, which goes through and takes that and turns it into an individual feedback for, a, for each student, uh, an individual feedback sheet. So, you know, each student gets their own feedback sheet showing uh, red, amber, green, how they performed on each question, uh, the maths watch clip number that relates to the topic of that question. Um, and so, you know, it's not just here's how you've performed. Here's your strengths and weaknesses. It's uh, and here's what you need to go and do about it as well. And we put a uh, like a flow chart of actions we expect them to take based on the feedback sheet. Um, so that's that's been good. Um, this year is the first year that we've had. Uh, our C2D borderline students are uh, just given additional maths. So they've been having seven hours of week, a, a week of maths planned into their curriculum from year 10. Um, so when they took their options at the end of year nine, they, they, rather than choosing a, an option C, they chose additional maths. Um, I visited Bruno Reddy at King Solomon Academy three years ago now, maybe four years ago. And I was just so convinced of the difference that just giving kids a bit more time, some additional lessons to do some extra consolidation and practice. I was so convinced that the difference that had made um, that, you know, we now as option C for our borderliner students, uh, we advise them to consider taking additional maths which uh, takes them up to seven hours a, a week of maths. And this is our first cohort through, which has, has had that for two years now. And, um, you know, we are we are well ahead of where we normally are in terms of our Easter trials and so forth. It's made a, a huge difference. It really has. And can I just ask there, Will, is it is it literally an option or is like can they opt out of this if they want? Can they choose a different subject if they want to? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, you know, we recommend them. So we we recommend it to them. We so the year nine's options evening, we would say, look, you know, we think you're likely to be a borderliner. Um, and um, we believe that if you took option C, it would significantly increase your chances of getting your C in maths. Um, but you know it's their choice they they don't they don't have to take it i mean you know we want kids in these lessons who want to be there and you know want to push on and, and aren't going to disrupt and so forth so it's yeah it, it genuinely is an option for them uh but we will advise them on our reasons behind it if you see what i mean got it that, that's fantastic stuff um and if we can now just turn our attention to to the new gcse are you, are you doing anything different with um current year 10s or current year nines that you um that uh compared to what you've done with previous year 10s and nines to to help prepare them for the more the, the increased demand of the new gcse will sure um it's 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 subtle it's not it's not really obvious i mean the scheme of work that we built for the new gcse is really in depth and we worked a lot together to come up with 
what we felt was best practice uh, in terms of, you know, or just good advice uh, for for teaching topics and so forth. So we've sort of built a, if you like, a suggested pedagogy into the scheme. Again, it's not prescriptive. It's just, um, uh, you know, we did some decent collaboration on that to make sure that we were pretty sound on on on, on the basics. Um, we looked at new textbooks to um, think of, you know, just to look at their suggested ways of teaching the new content that's on there. Um, our borderliners are getting seven hours a week, but they get that from nine, ten and eleven now. So, we, you know, they're going to get that all the way through their GCSE. We do a three year key stage four. Uh, so they will get the if they choose the additional maths, they're going to choose that at the end of year eight now um, and and so forth. Um, yeah, I think we we have been sitting the students on the new style assessments. So we're preparing them for it. And, and, you know, we've written to parents and we've shown the students what the new GCSE looks like. And so they're clear, you know, they are clear now that, um, you know, if they've just mastered the basic skill, um, that's not necessarily going to be enough. The bar is a bit higher in terms of what they're expected to, to use and apply um, and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's subtle. Um, you know, again, it's it's there's no kind of prescriptive things. I don't really believe in that. Uh, but certainly all the teachers and and the students, you know, there's been a lot of discussion with them of what it looks like and what the expectations are. So, yeah, I, I guess there is a uh, a slight increase in. Um, well, in in terms of rigor and so forth, and 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 realizing that the end point of a lesson needs to be a bit further on than perhaps it used to. Um, but you know, they, they, I do trust my teachers. You know, we've had that discussion. I trust my teachers that that, that they are going there um, and and doing that, Craig. Got it. And dare I ask, Will? You say you're using the um, the new spec papers and stuff. Um, mm. How are you? Um, how are you reporting kind of levels and grades there? Have you have you come to any successful strategy that that seems to be producing consistently kind of realistic results and stuff? How are you assessing with this new GCSE? Sure. So um, the the feedback that we're giving at the moment for for these students is entirely formative. You know, the grade boundaries um, have not been issued. Uh, they're not going to be issued until there is a, a, a cohort, a national cohort through. Um, at Graham um, coming at Excel, they released um, a couple of more practice set of papers um, uh, last week, I think it was. And those practice papers, most of the papers were built from questions that had um, been actually on previous GCSEs. And so he's included the results plus data, the national average marks. So on there it says, you know, an A-star student uh, nationally typically scored this on this question. So um, what you can do is backwards calculate from there what you think the new grey boundaries should look like. Um, I, I think, you know, that's certainly what we're going to do in terms of reporting current level uh, to our year 10s in their end of year exam. But up to now, I, I don't I'm not I'm not a huge fan of reporting current level, if I'm honest, Craig, to students 
until later in year 11. I think it's useful for tracking as teachers and so forth. Um, but I think, you know, earlier on the, the, in the course, the big focus for students needs to be, look, here's what you can do. Here are the things that you've learned and, and you're showing you can do. And, and these are the things you need to work on. And that needs to be the focus rather than, you know, what current level you are. Got it. No, that's that's refreshing to hear, Will. And again, just one one last question on, on that area. When you say you're reporting it formatively, what's that looking like to the students? Is that like a piece of paper with strengths and weaknesses on? Or what, what are you actually giving to the students? Sure. So it's uh, effectively like a, a blank question, uh, question analysis sheet. So it will, it will have all of the questions on the exam uh, on there. It will have the topics and the MathWatch uh, links uh, sorry, the MathWatch clip numbers that relate to those topics on there. And then the students go through and fill in the number of marks that they scored on each question and then rag it. Um, so, so they effectively are, are filling that in and then sticking in their exercise books. And then the expectation is that they go through and work on uh, those those amber and red topics um, that they've done there. I feel, you know, I think at, at this stage on, on the GCSE, that's the information that the students need to be told. Um, you know, progress isn't linear. If you, if you do track current level, which we've been doing for years, you know, students, I find if you, if you sit them on GCSE assessments, um, right the way through the course, they don't show a lot of progress until you get to year 11 and then you start doing practice papers. And then like our average student jumps a grade and a third between, um, Christmas in year 11 and the summer exam. So, you know, I don't, I just don't like to dishearten them by, by, uh, focusing on current level. It's, it's, it needs to be more formative, um, in the, in the run up to year 11, in my view, Craig. Got it. No, that's great. That's fantastic. Thank you all for that. Um, if I can turn our attention now to, to being a head of department. So am I right in saying this is your third, currently in your third year of being head of department? Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yep. And what would you say you, you've learned over those three years? What, what's worked well and what hasn't worked so well? I think um I think what what I what I have learned is the importance of um developing the the capacity for leadership within the team. Uh I think this is is really important um because you know we're, we're not short of ideas we're not short of things that that need doing them but but quite often what limits your capacity as a team is, um, it, it is, is literally, do you know, you know, how many people do you have in your team that could take, take that initiative and run with it and see it through and so forth? Um, so I, I do a lot of work, um, or no, perhaps put another way, I put a lot of time and effort into, um, trying to develop my teachers, um, as teachers, but then also as leaders so that then I can uh, give them um, initiatives and so forth and, and things uh, that, will, that will help them not only in their careers, but, you know, help the department in what we're trying to achieve and so forth. Uh, so I think, you know, taking that time to come up with that sort of personalized um, provision and opportunities to develop you know, the people in your team as leaders, if they want to be them, um, has, has been very important. Um, I think, yeah, I think that that's one of the things that, that I've learned. 
Um, I think if you've got a big team like I have, um, it's important that you get across a vision and a set of principles. I, do, I, I don't, um, I don't go into, uh, I, I don't, I don't write a lot of policies to be honest, Craig. I don't have checklists, uh, and rules and so forth. We, we more have the discussions of what is the vision? What is the principle we're trying to, 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 um, to, to stand by here? And, and then have a sort of a more professional sharing culture, uh, ra- rather than rules and checklists and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you quite often, if you trust your teachers in that way, they rise to it, don't they? Um, and, and there is, there is more sort of professional, pers- uh, respect and so forth, uh, that, that comes from it. I think that's, that's important as well. That's, no, that's fantastic. Very, very sound advice though. Well, how many are in your department just out of interest? Um, well, all up. Um, I mean, if if everyone were there, it would be twenty. Um, Flipping heck, that yeah. is big. Um, we've we've got you know quite a few part timers. We've got uh, some, you know, for example, the deputy head uh, who uh, in our school he he is uh, now teaching some maths and so forth. And uh, I've, you know, it's been really good actually to get a, a senior leader. Uh, to be teaching maths so that they understand the, the ideas. I mean, you know, he started with key stage three, um, and so forth. Um, so, you know, so we've got a couple, a couple of those as well. Um, so yeah, all up, um, you know, ignoring maternity covers and things like that. It would, it would be 20. That's, that's, that, that is big. And, um, can you just talk us through briefly what, what do your departmental meetings look like? How often do they happen? And, um, yeah, what, what's kind of on the agenda there for those? Sure. Well, I think it's, um, it varies on the time of year, you know, Craig. Um, uh, we typically have one per half term, uh, and, and it's typically, um, a couple of hours, uh, in, in length. Um, to be honest, the agenda changes, um, Every time I, there's no sort of common feature and so forth. Some are very teaching and learning based. Some are more administrative because they need to be, you know, it just depends on the time of year. Um, if it's just after Christmas, um, then it may be doing, um, you know, a certain amount of data entry or analysis based on the Christmas trials and so forth. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I I'm sorry, I don't have a particularly inspirational answer. To that one. <laughs> no, no, uh, not the. Re- I mean, the reason I ask is we um. So we meet once a week. We meet every Monday for around about 45 minutes uh, to yeah. an hour or so, and and try and get a bit of a combination of teaching and learning in there. But inevitably, the admin stuff kind of takes over and especially i've found over the years if you if you open up a meeting with the admin side of things it's an absolute disaster waiting to happen because everybody's so knackered come kind of 20 minutes in there and so bogged down in in data and levels and all this kind of stuff that as soon as you then try to bring in a bit of teaching and learning and the kind of in my opinion the important stuff you're in a bit of trouble so i'm just on again just on a bit of a quest just to try and find almost the perfect departmental meeting at the moment so am i right in saying you're you're just once a half term and do you do kind of the admin the day-to-day admin and weekly admin stuff is that just done via email and kind of informal meetings okay sorry so the big departmental meetings that we have are typically once a half term we do have a weekly 15 minute meeting on a thursday morning uh, which is very practical the day-to-day management and uh, a weekly stuff um i think i guess it, it comes back to this principles thing again i mean as a head of department what i see my role is really simple um my my role is 
to help my teachers be as high-impacting and as effective as they can possibly be. And so I protect them from a lot of the admin. Um, quite often in a department meeting, if there are administrative tasks to do, uh, I have done them beforehand. I present and then we amend it rather than starting with a blank sheet of paper. Um, so I think, you know, it was a bit of a cultural change, me doing that. And certainly um, in my early years, you know, the departmental culture was a bit different and people wanted to discuss and and so forth, the administrative side and that. And I, these days I very much see that as my role as a head of department to take that away from my teachers so that they can just concentrate on decent planning, decent assessment and and and, and getting better as teachers. So, um, you know, inevitably you have to go through the admin stuff, but I try and prep it beforehand and get their approval on it rather than, um, you know, to get their stamp on it rather than, um, you know, to, to spend vast amounts of time um, coming up with it and so forth. So, yeah, I do agree with you um, that, you know, teachers are, are much more interested, aren't they, in talking about teaching and learning and, and what's going to actually affect outcomes. There's nothing more draining <laughs> than having to talk about something that you don't think is going to affect outcomes. I agree with you on that. Absolutely. And the um, last question about being a head of department, and I, th this has dawned on me. I've I've worked under well, probably three or four heads of department now, and they've all said to me that 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 because of the amount of time the role takes up with with this admin side of things and all, all the other forms to fill out and all the planning and stuff, that inevitably their their teaching has suffered because their teaching is no longer, unfortunately, as much as they don't like it to be, it's no longer their number one priority. Now, is that something that's that that you felt that has your teaching suffered or been affected in any way since you become head of department and if if not what what how you or, or how do you kind of keep your keep your teaching as your, as your number one priority sure that's a really good question i mean it's certainly something that strikes a chord with me certainly my early my, my first year as head of department you know i noticed that i you know i got less time to plan lessons and so forth and i i felt as though um i felt as though my teaching was suffering because of it um it wasn't that i think i was teaching bad lessons but i knew i was teaching lessons that i felt weren't as good as they could have been and that i would have done um however what i did learn uh was you know i got great results at the end of that year from my class and what i realized was i I was actually being a bit more ruthless in just focusing on the stuff that I really know makes a difference. So I guess I did, there is a bit of guilt that occasionally your lessons may not be as inspirational as they once were. But I do know the learning is happening. Um, and I know, you know, I think I have a much better understanding of what's important now, uh, what, what motivates the kids, what um, what 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 gets them learning and I, and I certainly would perhaps reflect back to the earlier years thinking I did a lot of whizzy stuff <laughs> it was perhaps quite inspirational but it was more me than them in terms of um you know the thinking and and, and so forth and, and and the learning so I, I guess I've become more efficient um I but you know my kids still get good results and, 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 you know, I know, I know what I'm doing is, is still effective. So, um, occasionally a few guilts, but, um, but not, not too bad. I guess I, I have a different perspective on it than I did in my first year.
Got it. And you, you still enjoy the job, do you will, like being head of department? It's the best job in the world, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm not saying that I, I, will, I won't go to SLT and so forth one day, but, you know, I, I just I just feel it's perfect because I, I'm so enthusiastic about my teaching. Um, I, I can now have an impact uh, in helping other teachers teach really well, helping them develop as great teachers and, you know, seeing, taking an NQT and seeing two or three years down the line, them being an absolutely phenomenal teacher um, is, is, is one of the most satisfying parts of my job, to be honest. And um, yeah, I absolutely love it, Craig. I, I really do. And, um, you know, there are times when I think, you know, you know, perhaps as SLT, I'm not sure I could have the impact, you know, that I, I can as a head of department. I feel as though it's, um, you know, you've got the credence because you still teach a lot and, and you know you've got the perspective of, of of knowing that anything that you want to bring in and so forth, you, you can think it through because you know what it looks like at the coalface. Um, yet at the same time, you've got that kind of uh, side where you can you can help other people develop and, and, and have an impact wider than your classroom. I think it's the perfect job, to be honest. Oh, that's great. That's very, we should put you on an advert there, Will. That's very, very <laughs> refreshing to hear. I like that. Um, well, if we can move now to a, a couple of topics that I know are very close to your heart. And I, I want to start with, um, with I'm going to say this, I think it's one of the most interesting blog posts I've, I've ever read. Um, and it was one that you, you wrote um, a couple of years ago now. It was entitled, You've Never Seen the GCSE Maths Curriculum Look Like This Before. And sure. you also followed it up very recently with, with almost kind of the sequel to it called uh, Prior Learning Dependency flow and i'm going to link to both of those in into the sh- in the show notes but i just wondered if you if we could talk about those for a bit and just start by um me asking you what prompted you to kind of undertake the analysis and if you can just give us a bit of an overview of of, of what you looked at and what you found if that's all right yeah sure so um i guess it all started with this visit to king solomon academy uh, Bruno Reddy's department, uh, what, I think three or four years ago now. And um, I had a, a teacher in the department there who is now their second in maths, Chris Bolton, a fantastic maths teacher, a uh, real thinker. Um, and he introduced me to the concepts of um, cognitive load theory, working memory, long-term memory, and so forth. And I was really interested by uh, the what they were doing in their department there to to incorporate these ideas into their practice and the impact that it was having on the students. Um, so ultimately, you know, it came back to something very simple, which really struck a chord with me that, you know, you're trying to teach kids to cancel down fractions and they can't do it because they don't know their times tables. And and this idea that if their working memory is overloaded, uh, because uh, by all of the prior knowledge that uh, that they need in order to learn a new concept, then they don't learn it very well. And, um, you know, I guess as math teachers, we've all had that experience, haven't we? You know, uh, where, you know, you just can't move them on to the new concept because they, they, they're not fluent enough with with the basics um, of, of, you know, and the prior learning required to access that concept. And so, so out of that, I, I came away um, and, and just literally started with a few post-it notes while saying, you know, if I want to teach error of a circle, 
kids need to be able to uh, round to decimal places. They need to understand squaring and so forth. And I looked at all of the sort of uh, prior knowledge that would then feed into that. Um, and then, of course, that then fed into, you know, well, if they could do this, perhaps they could go on to uh, uh, error of a sector and so forth and, and, and things like that. Um, however, I ran out of post-it notes very quickly <laughs> and realized that I needed some kind of computer program to help me do it. Uh, and and so I did. And I used Gephi, which is uh, um, some freeware uh, that you can use. And I, I came up with the, the node diagram, which effectively took the uh, current spec GCSE, uh, simplified it into 164 uh, different topics, essentially, that we're trying to teach. Um, and then each one of those is represented by a node. And there are 935 links in that diagram between the nodes, uh, which symbolize where you need to know one thing in order to access the concept of the other. So if you want to simplify fractions, then, you know, knowing your times tables and being able to divide were things that fed into uh, into that node. And then I scaled the nodes in their size proportionally with the number of outgoing links that they had. So the largest nodes in the diagram are the topics which are the prior learning for more topics on the GCSE. And essentially, you know, you can't teach maths cumulatively. You know, there, there aren't enough hours, you know, for kids uh, to have complete fluency with everything you ever teach them, I, I feel. Um, but what it gave us an appreciation of was, look, if there are 20 or 30 topics that kids need to be really fluent at, they can do these things without the, the without thinking. They can do them automatically. Um by the end of key stage three, so that when you are teaching maths GCSE, um, these topics, these topics, which are the prior learning for so many different concepts on maths GCSE, these topics don't become the barriers to them learning. They don't take up lots of working memory resources uh, when you're trying to teach the kids the new concepts. And so the, the node diagram helped us do that. It, it, it reinforced, you know, how much is underpinned by number, um, something like 18 or 19 out, out of 20 of the um, of the topics on the GCSE, uh, the, sorry, of the top 20 topics uh, are number related topics. Times tables is, is huge. I think it's um, if kids don't know their times tables, I think something like 45 percent of all the things you try and teach them to do on the GCSE they'll find harder because they'll be thinking about their times tables rather than what you're trying to teach them or whilst you're trying to teach them the new concept. Um, so it, it really gave us an appreciation of what what we need to prioritise at key stage three in terms of fluency. So it wasn't a case of, um, you know, we're only going to teach these topics, but it was a case of, look, if, if, if you've got one of these big nodal topics, then make sure you space out your practice on it and that they get very fluent. And to um, try and help teachers to do that, we created Numeracy Ninjas, uh, which was informed by these biggest nodal topics. Uh, so all of our Key Stage 3 students uh, at Wyvern College uh, do a five-minute Numeracy Ninjas uh, session 
every lesson where they just practice these skills on these biggest topics to become really fluent at them. Uh, and then when you teach the other topics that they depend on, you can do much deeper learning with them because, you know, you can go on to all the reasoning stuff because all that basic prior knowledge fluency isn't holding them back. That Again, it fascinates me this, Will. And has that has that had major implications for your schemes of work at, at, at your school? Because I'm, I'm assuming this these results surprised you as much as they surprised me and everyone else when they read them. Just how much the GCSE is dependent on these key number skills. I mean, it's kind of obvious when you say it out loud, but I'd certainly never thought it was it was that important to, to the kind of degree that you, you found so has that had implications for your key stage three scheme of work that there are just some topics that you either leave till the very end or just don't even bother touching in key stage three until this fluency has been developed and has it changed the order in which you teach other topics yeah so it certainly has um we it was quite interesting it, feeding into this. I mean, leading up to Numeracy Ninjas, there were there were three things, really. It was the node diagram, uh, my understanding or uh, my learning of all the research behind memory, but also diagnostic testing. So when we have year sevens come in, uh, we diagnostically test them on 90 different skills um, each uh, using the Quick Key app. Uh, so they... Um, we test them on 30 mental numeracy strategies, uh, 30, we sample 30 of the times tables, and then we, we take the top 30 nodes in the node diagram and we test every year seven on the way in. And the first year we did this, uh, we were horrified to be honest. Um, it really showed that, um, you know, the, the single number that they'd been summarized as from their key stage two test hid so many things. You know, our level five students, um, 20% of them couldn't read the time on an analog clock. Flipping you know, and what we found, it was incredible. Every student in year seven, regardless of um, key stage two level, had at least one, but of many more, uh, uh, level two numeracy gaps. And and we were we were horrified by it. And um, so we realized that, um, you know, we needed numeracy ninjas. Uh, every kid needed practice on filling these level two numeracy gaps that they had. Um, so, so we built we built that. And so our lessons start with that to to fill these these gaps as they go. Um, yes. Then the node diagram, we, we basically um, looked at. I mean, I, I've summarized it in a Sankey diagram recently, but but what became very clear was that the um, you could infer from the diagram, you know, a logical type of uh, sequence uh, for a key stage three. So we start with number uh, loads of the, that is prior learning for algebra. Um, uh, you can then bring in data at that point. But shape is actually the um, the area in which uh, their prior learning for shape relies on number algebra. Um, so, you know, you can't, uh, you know, there are a lot of topics there in shape, which you can't go to a deep level at without um, some basic algebra skills and so forth. So we, we focus very heavily on number and algebra. Um, and on the nodal topics, we go into, you know, real depth, um, 
we, we do teach a bit less, to be honest, than what we used to. Um, in terms of breadth, we go for the depth instead. So we've, we've built enrich style activities into our scheme of work. Um, we are encouraging teachers to use concrete pictorial abstract approaches with these topics and so forth. Um, we've, we've bought textbooks that as gives on us question banks of very reasoning based deep, deep learning style questions on these topics. And, and, and we are doing these, um, you know, it's an evolving thing and it, it's getting better every year. I don't think we've completely nailed it yet, but it's, it's so much better than the days when, you know, you'd have like three weeks on fractions and, um, you know, you go through, get them to barely a procedural based thing. And then next week you're on to averages. It's, um, you know, it's certainly, um, more thought through than it, than it, and, 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 and rigorous now than it used to be. Well, just to play devil's advocate on this one, Will, and I did this with Bruno, what, cause this is essentially, am I right in saying it? I could categorize this as a, as a mastery approach to teaching. Would that be, would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, and one of the big kind of critiques of, of mastery is, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood things of mastery, but if if this fluency in these key topics is so important, and if, if students aren't fluent on these basic number skills, then they can't progress as well as they would do in, in the more advanced topics. What, what are we doing with the kids who haven't developed this fluency when the kind of time on the scheme of work to, to move on comes? Are, are we kind of doing intervention lessons with them? Are we not teaching them the new stuff? What but what do we do for the kids who just haven't developed the required level of fluency? I think I think there's you know there's a, there's a level here of uh, practicality that needs yeah. to then come in, Craig. To be honest, I mean, you know, if you look at the Shanghai models where you know the teachers teach like two thirty-five minute lessons a day and then have the rest of the day to do planning and intervention and so forth. I think, you know, the real spirit behind their approach, which I think is fantastic, is that you know don't let the gap establish in the first place um and you know and if they haven't got it intervene straight away and so forth and put the extra time in um and all of that and i think that's great i think it's you know it's it's next to impossible to be honest to run in a typical secondary math school um i think uh, in this country um for me it's definitely a catch more than necessarily catch all um you know the, the the, the 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 lower attaining kids um are are certainly more engaged with what we're doing now they're getting more satisfaction out of what they're achieving and so forth um what we have um we have identified you know as as you know right at the end of the bell curve there there are you know it, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all model um you know we are essentially uh moving on at, you know, to be completely honest and realistic about it, you know, we then do at some point have to move on and so forth. We're certainly taking more of them in terms of this this fluency with these topics than, than we ever did before. Um, you know, I think I think the next stage, it, it, it's a case of, you know, we practically would need more curriculum time than we have if we were to take if we were to aspire to take all of them, if you see what I'm saying, in terms of complete fluency uh, by the time they then start the GCSE course. Um, yeah, it's it's practical constraints. It's a very different, we, you know, we live in a very, we have a very different system to what they have um, in Shanghai in terms of 
practicality and so forth and the constraints in which we need to work. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly been a big step forward for us. Um, you know, but it, you know, there isn't a one size fits all model. I agree. Got it. Fantastic. Will. Well, I'd like to move on now to, to another one of your blog posts that's, that's, blow my mind really and you, you've kind of teased us with a bit about this earlier on in the interview by saying that you're off to off to the US to kind of further your study on this and this is this is the concept of memory flow and again we've we've mentioned it a little bit in terms of discussing spacing and so on but one of your most recent blog posts was uh, entitled forgetting is necessary for learning desirable difficulties and the need to dis- disassociate learning and performance and again I'll link to this in the in the show notes but if we can just talk about this a little bit what what first interested you in in the concept of of memory where where did that interest come from will i guess you know as i said it it came from that visit to king solomon um i think i did i I did that i became very interested in in the idea of cognitive load theory working memory and so forth and and if we could um build fluency in these prior learning topics that then kids could devote more working memory resources to the to the the higher level concepts that you're trying to teach them and so forth and i the nodes came out of that but i guess i've learned so many times in teaching that you know things there's always another layer to the onion isn't there (laughs) Um, you know things don't ever work as intuitively as you think they do and i felt as though my understanding of the memory-based stuff um wasn't deep enough. I felt as though, you know, just saying, oh, I'm going to design a skin of work to minimize cognitive load. Um, You know, there was going to be some gremlin (laughs) there um, and I needed to understand more. So I I, I went away and read. Um, I read a lot of uh, memory-based research stuff. And the thing that really resonated with me was the work of, uh, or two people's really, uh, uh, Professor... uh, Bob Bjork, who's uh, a distinguished professor over at UCLA, uh, and um, also a guy from the University of South Florida called um, Professor Doug Rohrer. And um, the moment that I read their work, it really just started resonating with me as a teacher. I mean, I guess I'd kind of always had these sort of feelings as a teacher that, you know, I knew retention was very important. Um, and I knew that teaching kids to have knowledge where you could transfer it to other contexts, uh, you know, I knew that was important. But through reading their work, what it did was it gave me a language that I could communicate and, uh, in and also a sort of a, a theoretical framework in which I could think about the implications of, of it on, on classroom practice. And so Bob York's work um uh, and I, I should include his wife in this. His wife uh, works with him as well, Elizabeth Bjork. Uh, they came up with this this idea called the the new theory of disuse. And um, ultimately, um, the put very simply, the idea is that um, anything that we teach kids, any memory, uh, has two strengths: a retrieval strength and a storage strength. Retrieval is how easy it is to recall a particular memory. Uh, storage strength is how deeply you've learned it, how connected it is to other memories that you have and so forth. And um, their theory of disuse uh, goes on to show that um, 
basically, you know, retrieval strength falls over time. We, we knew that from the forgetting curve and so forth with Ebbinghaus. But um, what their research went on to show was that story strength is entirely cumulative. It doesn't fall over time. So, you know, if they learn it deeply, um, they will lose access to it. <laughs> but, you know, when it is retrieved and you build that retrievability up again, that retrieval strength, it will come back as deeply as they'd learned it previously. So, um, you know, the, the old, you know, saying that you never forget how to ride a bike. Um, it's very true there. It comes back very quickly, even if you haven't done it for many years. And so that sort of started me, you know, that really resonated because Bruno Reddy had been talking about a mastery based curriculum and so forth. And, you know, I, you know, I looked at the spiral curriculum that we were doing at the time and teaching kids, uh, you know, how to add fractions twice or three times over their, over their, their five years with us to a very shallow level. <laughs> wasn't built, you know, uh, what was likely to not have the, the learning benefits of teaching them it typically once, but to, to a much deeper level and then ensuring that you do sufficient practice over time to keep the retrieval up. And so am I right in, in saying that the, cause again, it blew my mind this concept that if once it's learned and it's learned well, it's essentially in there somewhere and it's just a case of, ensuring that the students can retrieve it so am i right in saying the, the the implication is as simple as if we can kind of combine the two things that you've talked about here get getting the learning deep would possibly require the order of topics to be taught correctly so that students have the best chance of learning something well so their working memory is not taken up kind yeah. of processing skills that they should know so first get the order right yes and then teach something in depth once really well and then regularly practice it to keep those retrieval networks essentially alive. Is have I, have, have I oversimplified it, or is that is that the kind of essence of this? Yeah, no, I think I think you're you're right there, Craig. Um, yes, no, I think that's a, a pretty decent summary of it. Um, the the theory of disuse talks about the gains that you get in retrieval strength and storage strength. Um, when you do a retrieval event. So when when you recall something into your memory, uh, you so, for example, if I said, you know, what was your um, sorry, any any kind of retrieval um, that you do, you get an increase in um, story strength and retrieval strength. But the the jump that you get is dependent upon the relative strengths already. So this is where um, his concept of desirable difficulties come in. When you retrieve something, the jump in storage strength you get, so the depth um, of learning increase that you get, is a negative function of the current retrieval strength. So if you learn, if you can recall it without thinking, really automatically, when you do that, you don't really increase the depth of learning. Whereas if you have to retrieve it from a point where you've forgotten it, the jump in the depth of learning that you get when you do that is is bigger. So, you know, anecdotally, to make me a better driver would be really difficult uh, because I do it without thinking. Uh, but it, the, it, the point is, if I had to uh, take uh, if you took a new student, uh, a 16 year old and taught them to drive, it's easier to make them a better driver because they have to consciously uh, 
retrieve it and consciously be thinking about it when when they're doing it and so their jump in story strength if you like is is bigger is there can i just say at that point will again i might might have got this wrong but is there an implication there then that there's a danger that if you don't teach something well first time round, that it essentially limits how far the students can go with it because they're I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but take your example of of driving there. If you're an adequate driver, say, for example, you're still not going to improve as much because it's an automatic response, just as if you're a very good driver. So relating that back to teaching, if you teach somebody kind of they've got an adequate understanding of fractions they still don't have to make a massive jump to be able to kind of perform fraction related skills so they're still not having that kind of impetus to that kind of effect on the depth of their their storage of of, of fraction skills as opposed to if they're taught it really well first time round, then it doesn't matter as such that they're not increasing their their storage potential i don't know if i've said that right but it doesn't make any sense i know exactly what you're trying to say and and you've hit you've hit now that it's like i phrase it slightly differently um what what it is is what you, you don't want to effectively it's the argument against rote learning i think there is a a um uh, a misunderstanding sometimes in when I'm talking about fluency and so forth, I'm, I'm talking about fluency and a real depth of understanding behind that fluency. I'm not just saying about rote learning and just being able to recall something that they, they don't understand. It, ultimately, what, what it's saying is the, the theories of disuse, the implications of it are that you don't want to build the retrieval strength too quickly. And so this is where um, uh, this is where Bjork's concepts of desirable difficulties come in, because if if your retrieval strength just re- grows really quickly, they become automatic at it, and they then uh, don't get significant learning gains at future retrieval events. So, um, you know, they, they effectively have wrote learned how to do something, but that that learning is terribly. Uh, sort of confined to the domain uh, and the wording of the question and, and, and so forth. It won't be transferable. What it's saying is build the storage strength by keeping the retrieval strength down by introducing these difficulties. So the idea is don't give them 20 questions today on adding fractions after you've taught it. Give them five today five a week later once they've forgotten how to do it because when they retrieve it again they'll have to make deeper links and so forth five a couple of weeks later five again a couple of weeks after that the spacing is one example of these um strategies which prevents the retrieval strength growing too quickly prevents it becoming automatically uh automatic too quickly and then effectively putting a cap on the depth of learning i mean it really is railing against rapid and sustained progress it's an oxymoron you know if you want deep sustained progress then it doesn't come rapidly you know you need to incorporate a series of retrieval events and the opportunities for that the retrieval to drop for them to have forgotten something to then be able to recall it again and so forth you know if if you do that uh, in a slow, sustained way, uh, using spacing and interleaving um, uh, and other desirable difficulties, that, that the learning that then happens 
is is much more uh, durable. It, it's not just retained, but then it's uh, transferable across, uh, you know, to different domains and contexts and so forth. That's the idea uh, behind it. The storage strength will be will be deeper. Got it. Got it. This this fascinating that will and and related to that, you, I, I was reading in your blog post and you've mentioned it briefly in this interview. But this distinction between learning and performance, would you be able to just to talk about that? briefly if that's okay yeah sure it's 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 huge it's it's so important and i i think you know it's 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 another idea um well it's not an idea of bob york's this is uh this has been a distinguished uh in feature in educational research for for decades now the idea is that um performance is what kids can do at this moment in time that you can measure the learning learning is not that learning is retention over time and the transferability of that learning to different contexts um, typically so for example if you have taught a lesson on adding fractions and you give them uh, an exit ticket and this is the reason I'm not the biggest fan on exit tickets. What you're measuring on that ticket isn't necessarily their learning. If if they answer that ticket correctly, you cannot look at that and make a prediction about whether they will still be able to do this in six months time on a question in which it was worded slightly differently. What that ticket may be telling you is that they can mimic an algorithmic process that you've shown them today for which they have no understanding on. You know, mimicry is one example of um, something which can prop up performance and give you um, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a, the, a poor guide as to, to learning um, their understanding. It's, it's a dangerous thing. If you just use performance. So, um, you know, Bjork talks about the need to dissociate learning from performance. So if, if you're going to assess whether kids have learned something from your lesson today, you could do an exit ticket and measure their performance, which might be propped up by recency or mimicry and, and so forth. Or you could test them in, in three weeks time and on a question where you don't tell them that this is even an adding fractions questions, perhaps you hide it within a context. If they can do it then, then that's a much better proxy for learning than the exit ticket, which could just be performance would be. I think you're absolutely right though. Well, and we um, we actually we redesigned our key stage three schemes of work a couple of years ago. And one of my kind of um, inspirations behind it was was a post that you wrote about the, about the forgetting curve. And I guess implicitly it was about this this distinction between between learning and performance. And as a result, in our scheme of work, in in each homework, we have like a I think it's a 10 mark section that's covering the kind of current content that's been taught in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then a, um, a a section at the start, which is 
questions that have picked from come earlier on in the year um that, and it's it's fascinating every time that you'll you'll get you'll get questions that students have demonstrated really sound well allegedly really sound understanding of at the time and then three three four weeks later or two months later whenever a very similar question appears um at the start of a homework their just performance on it is is disastrous and that as you've as you've articulated very clearly there that suggests it's it's performance not not understanding at all and that scares me when kind of mastery is misused because there is a danger i feel anyway that if we're especially in this kind of life without levels and all this kind of stuff if we're looking for evidence of kind of competency and understanding of a topic and if that evidence is based on right we've taught students this let's immediately assess them on it right they've done this well big tick in the box there we, they, they've, they've, they've shown me evidence that they can add fractions together unless you retest that three months later you've no way of distinguishing whether this is kind of performance or, or depth of understanding and that just scares me about the misuse of mastery if that makes sense I, I couldn't agree more Craig but I think it's been a misuse forever in, yes and certainly in my career like for example when I started teaching APP was the rage <laughs> absolutely yeah now I can show you two books um you know full of beautiful correct answers um on adding fractions one student will go on to get a G unable to do that on the test the other student will get a C able to do it on a test you know and we were filling in APP goods based on this performance that you know you saw in their exercise books every day saying right I've seen some evidence that they can do this and then you know putting that as a green cell in an APP sheet um, you know, and, and what you ended up there was effectively a record of what you'd taught them, <laughs> not what they would be yes. able to do down the line. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily something that's um, mastery specific. I think it's um, I, th I think it's always been there. Uh, ultimately, what we're doing now at Wyvern, I mean, you know, I think there's a spectrum here. There's no perfect solution, is there? Uh, what we're doing now is we are doing end of unit tests um, on a topic, but ensuring that they are time delayed a few weeks. So they can only be sat after a few weeks after you last taught the topic. Plus, um, plus they are contextually varied and so forth. Um, and, and that, and you know, that, that gives you a much better impression. Now, you know, Retrieval dies off over time. So because they can do it three weeks after they taught, it doesn't necessarily mean they could do it six or nine weeks afterwards and so forth. So, you know, what, you've got to make a decision here in terms of what you feel is reasonable. Um, but, you know, it, it, there's a big difference between an end of unit test based on topics all modelled up from a series of lessons you've taught them that sat in a time-delayed way and the questions are contextually different to the way in which you've taught them and filling in an APP sheet based on some mimicry that you're, you're looking at in their books. You know, it's um, we, it's not perfect, but it's certainly a, a, a step forward. Absolutely. Um, and I one thing I would I would actually add, and I think it's important listeners understand this one, actually, is I don't shy away from telling the kids this stuff. I've. I've had a, so much more buy-in from the kids to wrestle with this difficult stuff 
Um, if you just literally tell them this, if you tell them the research, if you show them the research, you get their buy-in and they're more engaged and more willing to wrestle with the difficult uh, tasks where they're less successful than, um, you know, just uh, just getting 20 correct answers through mimicry in a lesson. Absolutely not. Very, very sound advice. And again, I, that's been a, a running theme throughout these, these podcast interviews that... Uh, honesty with the kids is absolutely the way forward whether it's that some topics are, are when kids say when am I going to ever use this in real life just being honest and saying well, you're probably not going to use it in this context and just just being honest with kids I think is a very underrated uh, skill of, of a teacher I absolutely will um, if I can turn now last, last couple of last couple of sections really um, I, you've touched upon numeracy ninjas and it's an absolutely absolutely fascinating website and again we're, if you haven't heard of this listeners um, we, I'd stop listening to this right away now and, and go and fire it up because it's amazing and I will link to it in the show notes but can you just just talk about what the website is and you, you mentioned that the inspiration behind it was was kind of in in response to the gaps that you'd seen in your year sevens can you can you just talk us um, through numeracy ninja as well what what it is now and, and what you hope it's going to be what what you hope it's going to become sure so um, it was a response to realizing that it wasn't necessarily that the kids couldn't do these node skills it, they couldn't do them really fast and automatically without thinking. Um, um, you know, these level two numeracy gaps were, were, were was hogging their working memory as we were trying to teach them um, new concepts. So what it was, uh, what it is essentially is a series of ninja skill books, they're called. And you would each child gets their own uh, skill book, which you can download from the website. I've made them all free. Um, entirely free to download and use. Uh, it's a free product. Um, and basically you start your lesson uh, with a five minute ninja session. So uh, it's silent working that you will say it's, you know, week seven, session two. And off they go. There's a PowerPoint that has a timer that counts down and they work through 30 questions, 10 on mental numeracy strategies uh, 10 on times tables and associated divisions and uh, 10 on uh, a selection of the top 30 node topics, 10 of them. And they go through that session and, and they work and the time comes up and then the PowerPoint uh, shows the answers. They class mark it. They get a ninja score out of 30. And then that ninja score uh, relates to a certain color ninja belt. Uh, so they need to get 30, a ninja score of 30 to get a black belt and so forth. And there are, I think, 10 belts that, that they that they level up on as, as they get better and more fluent at it. It's then important that um, after that session that a teacher then says, are, you know, are there any questions that uh, you can't see a fast strategy for solving? And then uh, talks through, you know, whatever it is, using number bonds and compensating or whatever is the sticking point. And uh, the whole thing can be done in about eight minutes uh, in at the start of a key stage three lesson. If you if you get the routines good. And the idea is then that they do this every day um, and, and they become more fluent at these skills over time. Now, we don't want that retrieval strength to grow too quickly. We don't want them to become super fluent in this um, too quickly because it will late, uh, limit the gains on the depth 
the story strength. So what we do actually is uh, there are effectively 90 topics built into ninjas, but we only assess 30 of them each week. So they go on to a three week rotation. So if they are studying, if fraction of an amount is one of them uh, on week one, it will come back round again on week four and so forth. And um, Doug Rohrer's research has suggested that three weeks is typically an optimum spacing. So that's that's why we did it like that. Um, and kids love it because to them, you know, to your sevens, they love it because it's a game. There's. Um, promotional materials that I've put on there to go with it so you can create displays that's little ninja characters there are um, uh, at the end of each half term you then take the kids who um, have achieved the uh, have made the most progress in terms of their ninja scores and you denote them as grandmasters uh, and so I've put on the website um, certificates that you can download for free to um, award to your grandmasters um, and so forth. Um, so so that's, you know, that's good because, you know, there are the kids like being being the grandmasters in the class um, and so forth. Um, in addition to that, there are what I've called ninja skill focus worksheets. So there are 90 worksheets on the website. Again, these are all free. Um, and what they are are typically if a kid is struggling on one specific skill, they're just practice on that skill for an intense burst, um, which then is, you know, will be picked up on a three weekly schedule with their, their ninja sessions um, and so forth. And then finally, I mean, I've made the whole project that I've just described there entirely free because I, I just want, you know, if it's useful, I don't want money to be a barrier in, in, in terms of any kid accessing it. Um, but to kind of help the project develop as, as we take it further. Um, we did set up like an online shop there where you can go on and order stickers or pencils or rulers and so forth, badges, grandmaster badges and so forth. So schools can purchase some uh, rewards for their grandmasters and so forth. And then we're using that to, um, uh, to, to, you know, help the project move forward in terms of our ambitions for it, um, you know, down the line. Well, that's superb that will. And just just two questions on that. Firstly, I guess it's too early to have any concrete evidence of the impact it's had. But anecdotally, in your school, um, what improvements have you seen in the students? Um, so, it, to be honest, it's not too early. We've been tracking ninja scores each week. So every class, um, we we're recording the mean ninja score in every class once a week. We're sampling sampling once a week. And every single class has made significant progress on it, Craig. Um, we, you know, particularly the lower ability classes. I mean, um, you know, we've had kids go from basically, you know, spending the first few weeks just getting their mental numeracy strategy gaps sorted to now then accessing, you know, the key skills and so forth. They've gone from, you know, mid teens up to high 20s in terms of their ninja scores. So, um that's that's really encouraging and we one of the things that um professor bjork or his colleagues are going to help me with is to write up an actual impact study uh for ninjas and we're going to publish that in a peer-reviewed uh journal because i i would like to be able to say to a head of maths look if you run ninjas this is the difference that you can expect in terms of um the, the kids numeracy fluency um 
So we also are going to do the diagnostic testing uh, that I mentioned earlier in the podcast at the end of the year. So we can actually see on a child by child basis uh, which skills they can now do that they that they couldn't at the start of the year. So um, there is some early data which is looking really promising. And then the in-depth diagnostic testing uh, we will publish um, later on in the year. Oh, superb. And you hinted there that uh, the project is nowhere near complete here and that there's some exciting developments. So can you give us a bit of a hint? Where's Numeracy Ninjas going in the future? Sure. It's really exciting. I mean, you know, we launched it last August and we've got like 1,600 and something schools on the mailing list now, um, which is really exciting. It's got a real sort of community behind it. And one of the things that uh, I, I've done in the recent newsletter is to um, throw it back to the community, what, how, how they would like to see it developed um, and so forth. I think it's really important that it's teachers at the coalface giving us suggestions uh, for improvements. Um, I think that's that's important. One thing we certainly have got planned uh, and we've started development on is an online version, uh, the vision being that, uh, you can um, set up an account for every student in your uh, year seven and eight you, and they can log in and um, take part in, say, three minute um, numeracy ninja battles online uh, against, say, 10 other people around the world. And, and they will an- you will answer questions and, and um, effectively get your world ranking your world ninja ranking or or, or so forth and it being an engaging game based like online gaming type based product which um will allow kids uh time to uh, sorry a, a fun experience in order to practice get some additional practice um i'd like it to be diagnostic so it would report back to the teachers um the improvements that the kids had made in terms of specific skills and so forth and all of that. That's the kind of vision um, uh, we, we've started working. To be honest, it's, it's a very long way off. Um, but, you know, that's that's a vision for it that I would like to to, to bring to fruition in the future, Craig. Um, but, you know, if any of your listeners have, have any other suggestions, I'd, um, I'd be really interested um, in hearing them. Fantastic, Will. And it really is a wonderful, wonderful website. So thank you so much for for developing it. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, Final question from me before um, I give you the opportunity to share some links uh, with our listeners. And that's um, just kind of looking back over your career and stuff. What what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching? Or to put it another way, I don't know whether it's the same question or a different question. What would you include on a teacher training course that that wasn't perhaps there when you did your teacher training? That's a really good question. (laughs) And I know I've got a tendency to talk, so I'll try and keep it. (laughs) Um, I think, obviously this memory stuff is, is important. I wish that through a deep understanding of this these concepts and stuff i would have been able to articulate why rapid and sustained progress was was never going to happen you know it's an oxymoron that i would have been able to articulate why um the the lessons which are pitched higher in which kids are thinking hard 
not necessarily producing uh, lots of tangible output, but they are thinking hard and for extended periods of time um, that, 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 you know, the, the benefits from that uh, in terms of long-term learning um, are so much better than, uh, you know, a, a procedural-based lesson where, you know, you get them to show something on the, the mini whiteboards at the end of the lesson and, and, and praise them for showing lots of progress um, purely based on mimicry or so forth. I think I think that would have been, yeah, that, that kind of appreciation of there are no shortcuts. If you want decent, deep, sustained learning, it needs to come um, not from short wins. You know, you're going to study it today. You won't get it completely. We're going to have to practice it again in the future um, a number of times. And you need to stick at it and, 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 and engage with deep thinking problems in order to master it. Um, I think I think, you know, that that would have um, helped me um, articulate uh, my discomfort with, with many of the sort of Ofsted policies and, and criteria and stuff like that uh, that were around at the, the start of my career. Uh, Craig, um, I think the importance of um, relationships, um, I think, you know, uh, the rapport and the relationships that you have with kids um, is and trust and so forth. You know, everything we've spoken about today is very analytical and scientific and, and so forth. But, you know, it's all completely irrelevant if, quite frankly, if the kids don't like you uh, <laughs> and you're not showing them that you care about them as people as much as you do mathematicians. You know, it's all irrelevant. I think, you know. For me, these days, you mentioned about, you know, has my teaching suffered or not? I think it comes down to I know what a powerful motivator learning is and an intrinsic powerful motivator. And, the, you know, I, I don't go to um, bingo games and, and endless card sorts and, and so forth these days um, anywhere near as much as I used to because if you can get a kid if you can show a kid they are a good learner, more often than not, you know, that's that's then an enduring intrinsic motivator that will push them on. You know, I'm not saying don't use these extrinsic motivators um, to, to get them to the point where they're doing some learning. But but once they once they are doing some decent learning and you, you know, and you can show them their progress and you can show them their good learners, um you know that that is 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 such a powerful motivator, uh, and I wish I'd have known that earlier in my career to be you know to to show kids their progress at every opportunity that you can and keep reinforcing the message that they're great learners, and and the power that that has to um, inspire them further rather than you know looking forever ever more extrinsic motivators and rewards and and so forth. That's a fantastic answer, that will. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, we're reaching the end here. I've kept you for almost two hours here, Will. So we're going to move on to the final section, which is uh, the big three. So this is your opportunity, if someone's uh, listening to this, to direct them towards um, three. But I know you've, you've squeezed in an extra one here, but I'll let, I'll let you off uh, with that one. Uh, and three three pages that you'd uh, like to direct listeners towards. And I'll link to all of these in the show notes. But if you could just talk us briefly through each one, Will. 
Cool. Thank you, Craig. Um, the first one, I would really like uh, teachers to have a read of that blog post that you mentioned, the one that I wrote about forgetting is necessary for learning and so forth. Um, what I've tried to do in, a, in just a few thousand words is to summarise all of the stuff that I've learned about memory um, and the implications of classroom practice and so forth. And I, I, you know, the more that I speak to teachers about it, too, um, uh, I, the more they kind of, you know, it really resonates with them and so forth. And I, I, I really believe that, um, you know, I, I, that, that new teachers should know this stuff and, and, and that. I think it's, it's impacted my practice so much, um, that, that, you know, I think it's a, sh a relatively short summary of, um, about two years of professional learning and, and lots of reading that I've done. So that's, that's the first thing, uh, that I think may, may interest people. Um, the second one is a fantastic blog by a guy called Nick Rose, um, Evidence into Practice. It's called, uh, he takes a very common sense, uh, um, research informed or evidence formed, um, approach to, um, the real practicalities of classroom practice. So whilst it is kind of a, there's a scientific undertone and so forth, there's a lot of very good common sense um talk through his blog i think he was uh nominated for a tes award um last year so fantastic blog um my third one is cheeky because it's actually four links um but effectively it's the blogs of uh teachers at michaela community school um i'm so inspired by the work that they're doing at that school i'm going to visit them in a in a couple of weeks time um so joe kirby who's their um head of english and a deputy head Naveen Rizvi, a maths teacher, Danny Quinn, another maths teacher, and Bodil Isaacson, who is the head of maths there. Their blogs uh, about um, how they are teaching maths there are very inspirational. Um, again, their very pragmatic approach is very focused on what has an impact um, and being very lean and focused um, in terms of their policies on, you know, I, I think for me, you know, it, it, I haven't visited there yet. I get the impression it's a school where they've really mastered um, the idea that, you know, learning happens um, with the kids. And, you know, it's it's not about getting the teachers working harder. Uh, you know, it's about getting the kids working harder. And they seem to, um, you know, their teachers work, work very hard there, I'm sure. But, you know, not at the expense of uh, the kids, the kids work incredibly hard at that school. And it's very inspirational when you read their blogs as to hear um, how they're going about that. So that's the third one. And then I suppose my extra uh, fourth one that you'll allow me, Craig, is um, <laughs> Hegarty Maths. Um, Colin Hegarty was obviously up for that um, big teacher prize. Um, his new website, uh, I think, is tremendous and it's it's in its early stages at the moment but it, it's working and what it does is you know he's done a video for everything on the GCSE but he's also in that website written a quiz for every topic uh, and it records the marking so you know imagine the the the, the video side of maths watch with the quizzing of, I don't know, say my maths or whatever, uh, with, you know, uh, some decent mark book tracking um, of how your kids are doing. It's it's the first one that I've seen 
uh, which incorporates all three elements there, instruction, uh, assessment and tracking um, all into one product. Um, and, you know, you get the impression by looking at that, that it's it's been designed by a teacher. The, le- the, the videos are very good, uh, very good. The 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 usability of the site, the design of it, it's um, the questions in the quizzes, you know, they, they're written by an experienced teacher rather than, you know, randomly generated questions and so forth. It's, um, you know, it's in its infancy at the moment, but a big shout out for that. Do check it out. You can get a free trial of that until September. Um, and I'm certainly going to be using it with my year 10s. That's superb, that will. Well, just on behalf of, uh, uh, well, for a selfish reason, uh, myself, uh, for all your inspirational blog posts and numeracy ninjas and all the stuff you've done, but also the teaching community as a whole, just thank you for taking the time to speak to us today and for all the wonderful work you've done. It's been a real pleasure, Will. Uh, you're very welcome, Craig. It, it, it's been a very enjoyable experience. Thank you. So there we have it. What an epic interview, but I hope you agree it was worth your time listening to it. In terms of a takeaway, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about memory and choose two particular points because it's a fascinating area. The first was uh, when Will discussed about the importance of working memory. Now, when Will described it, I thought, flipping out, that's obvious. That's probably something I should have known for ages, but I'd never actually thought about it in explicit terms. But I can certainly relate this to my experience I'm having this year teaching my year seven class. Now, I think I've mentioned it previously on the podcast, but I've I've got a bottom set uh, year seven class. I know you're probably not supposed to say bottom set, but I'm going to say it anyway. So they're a bottom set, pretty low ability year seven class. And I'm having a bit of a nightmare teaching them certain topics. So on the scheme of learning was was fractions, simplifying fractions. But they can't simplify fractions until they know the times tables. And it's only when I heard and thought about this concept of working memory that I could really start to kind of articulate and understand the exact difficulty they're having. Because I'm trying to teach them the new skill of uh, simplifying fractions and what it means and getting them to understand the context of it. But all their brain power and all their thought process is is taken up trying to think of factors of numbers and work back from their times table and how many times does this go into this and so on. So they can't can't actually focus their attention on this new skill of of simplifying fractions because all their memory is taken up on um, old skills that they need to be fluid in. And once again, it it all revolves around this concept of mastery and, and the pretty obvious but absolutely pertinent and important point that students do need to be fluent at certain fundamental skills to free up their working memory to allow them to acquire new knowledge and it was just putting it in terms of working memory that I, I really kind of hit home for me. That was the first thing and the second thing is this importance of spacing and Will talked about the fact that when you taught something really well, you learn it and it stays in your head. So that's the good news. But the bad news is, unless you then revisit it, you can't actually retrieve it. And I tell you what, I'm experiencing this this year with me year 11 class. So um, for whatever reason, um, my year 11 class, I inherited them in September and they're, they're, they're struggling a little bit with their mathematics. I seem to over the last few years have developed this kind of technique of picking up year 11 classes in September and hopefully trying to, trying to improve their enjoyment of maths and, um, and their overall results at the end. 
So there was loads of gaps in their knowledge. So I invented this thing called the Barton's Big 45. And I th I've kind of nicked it off just maths. Is, uh, I think she has like a, a top 40 or a big fat 50 or something like that. So I have Barton's Big 45. And basically every lesson, uh, we, we take a topic and we do a basic question on it. I call it a benchmark question. And then I do some teaching if I need to. And then students do some practice. And then at the end of the lesson, we do a challenge question. And a, a kind of the most difficult exam question I could find on it. And without fail, by the end of each lesson, I walk away thinking, nailed that one. The kids seem to understand that everybody's happy. But then, sure enough, when they come to do a past paper or something like that, it's like they've never flipping seen it before. And I experienced this the other week with... Uh, proportion and we had a great lesson on direct and inverse proportion and all the kids could do it and then I was doing some intervention with a couple of girls from my class uh, just just a couple of days ago and honestly it was like they never flipping seen proportion before in their life and so I, I, t I told my year 11s just just after I'd spoke to Will um, about this this concept of, of this spacing and the fact that when you've learned something well, like hopefully they're doing the big 45, it's in the red. That's the good news. But the bad news is unless they revisit it, and I said to them, leave it a week and then revisit it once yourself at home. Leave it another couple of weeks and then revisit it again at home. And I've kind of told them this, this magic rule of revisiting something twice is just going to help make those connections, those retrieval connections so they can find it. And I told, I, I kind of related it to my kids of, of saying, when you do the lesson, it's like me giving you a million pounds and you know for a fact you've got a million pounds somewhere. But the problem is you can't remember where the flipping heck it is. And it's only when you come to do some practice that you start to kind of figure out where it is on the map and maybe remember the pin code to how to access it in the safe and so on. Because what you don't want to do is be sat in an exam thinking... I'm sure I've done this, I'm sure I should know this, but I don't have a clue how to access it, because that's going to be an incredibly frustrating thing. So this whole concept of spacing has got massive implications for schemes of learning and homeworks and assessment, but just until I get time to fully process that myself, as a short-term kind of implication myself from it, I've said to my year 11s, after each Big 45 lesson, leave it a week, then revisit it at home on your own, then try and leave it two weeks and then revisit it again. And if you do that, that's when it's lodged in your head. That's when you formed all the neural connections that you need and that's when you can access it. So that was my takeaway from, from Will's um, fascinating discussion and research into memory. So anyway, let's return now to Will, who's got a podcast puzzle, and it's a podcast puzzle with a bit of a difference there, so there'll be a link to the show notes of where you can access the, the visual aid that accompanies this. Will describes it very well, but you may find it uh, even more beneficial to look at the visual aid. Um, so let me hand back to Will Emery. Okay, so my podcast puzzle uh, is is a fantastic little puzzle I got a from a training course last year. Um, it's based around uh, finding all the different combinations of rectangles that have a fixed area on a where the vertices of the rectangles need to be on a square grid. Uh, so the, uh, the question starts, uh, the activity starts by giving uh, a couple of rectangles which have a an area of 10 square units. However, critically important is that one of the rectangles is actually slanted. Um, and it says that in total, there are five different rectangles with vertices on the grid uh, that have 
um, an area of 10 square units. Can you draw all five? Uh, after that, uh, you then go on to prove, uh, ask you to prove that there can be no more than five um, before then going on to saying, well, could you repeat the exercise uh, for rectangles that have an area of 12 square units? How many will there be and how do you know you've got them all? Um, it's a lovely problem, this. Um, I've um, done this with a variety of different classes. Um, the maths underlying the problem uh, relates to Pythagoras' theorem and surds, and then obviously area of a rectangle. Um, and you can get some lovely uh, simplifying surds practice uh, combined with Pythag out of it. Um, very enjoyable problem, uh, very deep, and I've seen um, lots of uh, different approaches to solving it. So there you have it, what a wonderful puzzle and problem that is. Well, all that's left for me to do is once again thank my guest Will Emney for taking up his uh, time and sharing some of his fascinating research and practices with us. I really hope you enjoyed it and found it as useful as I did. And thanks also to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And just a massive thank you to you uh, for listening to this. It, like These podcasts take up a fair bit of time. I absolutely love doing them, but it, it, it really makes my day when I, I know people are listening and and I know it's a bit kind of egotistic, but when people send nice comments in and stuff. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for that. Um, if you want to get in contact, so if you've got any comments or questions, or just to say hello, then you can find me on Twitter, where I'm at Mr. Barton Maths, or via email, that's teachers at MrBartonMaths.com. Uh, please subscribe to this email, uh, this email, this podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And if you can help spread the word about this podcast, or just give us a rating, ideally a good one, that would be hugely appreciated. And I shall return next episode with another dose of mathematical goodness but for now take care and see you next time